Well, Rich, thanks so much. I'm grateful for you. Doesn't he sound like a preacher? Isn't that amazing? Rich and uh, Chris are uh, brand new members with us. They joined. Uh, they actually went through the dinner with the pastor and the new members class these last couple of weeks. If you're not a member with us yet, we'd love for you to join us. I'm so grateful that you guys are here. They're house parents at the Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children and uh, bringing a great crowd with us. I love it. It's always fun to get to know everybody, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And just like he said, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we are today. And we're just kind of con continuing in this series that we've called A King's Tale. And what's interesting is in these first eight chapters, we haven't quite gotten to the king yet. We've been talking about Samuel and the prophets and just the nation of Israel and all that's been going on. But we're going to continue going section by section through 1 Samuel. And this is the first time in chapter 8 where we really begin to talk about a king. And as we think about this, there's just some things that I want us to consider, and I just thought this might be a good way for us to begin. I have a 10-year-old son named Dawson, and Dawson and I, well, it's really more Dawson. Dawson loves to play this game called Would You Rather. Have you ever played that game, Would You Rather? So I thought we'd start by playing that game. You want to play that game with me? Okay, it's real simple. Um, I'm going to show you some pictures of some things, and I'll just ask you some Would You Rathers. And so the first one, and this is sort of where he starts, and I'm not sure where he got a taste for these kinds of cars, but he'll start with, hey, Dad, would you rather own a Lamborghini Aventador, which I think a picture, yeah, that's one of those, um, or a McLaren 720S, which one of, would, you, would, you, would you rather own? I think both of them are about $300,000 cars, and so he got all his taste from his mother, I think, is what actually happened. So which would you rather, the Lamborghini or the, or the McLaren? Just shout it out. The Ford. I've got a Ford over here. That's good. Uh, uh, you're kind of weird. Um, so, okay, here's another would you rather. Um, would you rather, for vacation, go to the mountains or would you rather go to the beach? Which would you rather do? Would you rather go to the mountains or would you rather go to the beach? Which one would you rather do? Just shout it out. Yeah, my wife would so much rather go to the beach than anywhere else. That's her favorite. Would you rather go? How about this? And this is one that this one comes straight from Dawson. Would you rather eat pizza for the rest of your life or drink Mountain Dew for the rest of your life? Which one would you rather? Pizza. I'm saying chocolate. That's, that's just a... You can eat it, you can drink it. It's sort of a vegetable because it grows on a tree. It's the perfect food, right? So how about this one? It's related back to the driving one. Would you rather uh, drive on a parkway or park on a driveway? Which would you rather do? That's the park on a driveway, and then here's the drive on a parkway. There's the drive on. Yeah, would you rather? Um, just shout it out, which one? I yeah, I'd rather drive. I don't want to park. Parking is boring. I'd rather get moving somewhere. That'd be good. Okay, these last two don't have any pictures with them. All right, these last two don't have any pictures with them. You're going to have to listen closely to the words of the first one, okay? Would you rather suffer the mistakes and the misfortunes of a free people or live as a slave in the luxurious prison of a tyrant? I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it one more time just so you can catch it. Would you rather suffer the mistakes and the misfortunes of a free people or live as a slave in the luxurious prison of a tyrant? So just think, yeah, free people. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people would say that. So just, and on this last one, I'm going to ask you not to answer this last one out loud because it really is the point of 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to ask it as a question, but it's really the point of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Would you rather follow God or be ruled by men. You see, that's the, 
That's the point. That's the question of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Would you rather follow God or be ruled by men? So we're going to unpack that a little bit. But before we can unpack the passage, I think you need a little history. You need to kind of know the story of the children of Israel just a little bit. You see, the children of Israel, there was a time when they weren't known as God's people. And that's way back in the history. This is a long time before this moment in 1 Samuel. God calls Abram out of the land of Cana and tells him, I've got this place I want you to go. And I'll tell you more about the covenant that he made with Abraham in a little bit. But he makes this covenant with Abraham. And Abraham comes and he lives his life. And out of Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the other, 12, uh, the other, the other 11 tribes... Uh, of, of Israel, this huge nation rises up. And you guys remember the story, especially if you've seen the movie with Charlton Heston or possibly the comic or the cartoon strip. At some point, the children of Israel, are, they move into Egypt and then they become slaves in the land of Egypt. And then Moses rises up. God raises up this deliverer through Moses. And with Moses, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. You probably remember that story, whether you've read it in scripture or seen it on TV or something like that. The children of Israel, they leave Egypt. God draws them out of the land of Egypt. He is their deliverer after doing all of these miracles. And then they they make a mistake. They look back towards Egypt and say, I think we should probably go back there. It seems like it would be a little safer. And so God has them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years as that generation that disobeyed God said, uh, you know, I'm not going to follow you, God. We're gonna, we'd rather kind of do it the way everybody else does. That generation really dies off. They, they really fade out. And this new generation under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb, they come to this finally, this promise that God had made into this promised land. And they take the promised land. They cross the Jordan River and this, this mighty nation of God comes into the promised land and, and they spend the next several years really just coming into the inheritance that God had promised them. And it's really a beautiful season in the life of the children of Israel. There's not really a central government as we might think of it. There's a bunch of, well, there's 12 tribes that are, that are led by families. And these families, you know, they lead out uh, in, inside their tribe. They're led, they're led by families. And they're really following the traditions and the laws of Moses that are written uh, in the first five books of the Bible. And that's just kind of the way that, that the nation is governed. And then you get to the book of Judges. And you see that there are these moments when the children of Israel, they draw close to God and things are fantastic. They keep the covenant and God continues. He's faithful. He just always keeps their covenant, his covenant with them. And then there are moments when they back away and they say, no, God, we're going to do it our way. And they say, you know, I'd kind of like to just be more and more like the other people around me. They start worshiping other gods. They start, they start following other people. And, and every time they draw away from God, something terrible happens. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your own life. In those moments when you draw close to God, maybe it's in a moment of suffering. You draw close to God and God brings comfort and he brings healing. Maybe you draw close to God and the suffering continues, but you realize you're not alone. His presence is with you. His people are with you. He guides you. He protects you. He shows you things that you wouldn't have known otherwise, but you're close to him. And even in the bad times, the bad times are better because you're with God. And the good times are greater because God is with you. And you've experienced that. And then there's that moment in your life where you pull away. And it seems like the good times are worse and the bad times are even worse than that. And you pull away. Well, the children of Israel, through the book of Judges, they experienced that. For them, it was very political and very uh, um, military in the way they experienced it. When they pulled away from God, they ended up becoming, well, they ended up being attacked by other nations and at times being 
um, I would say, enslaved by these other nations, nations like the Philistines. And so in the book of Judges, it's just kind of one judge after another. The children of Israel would pull away from God. And then they would cry out to God for help and God being faithful like he is in the middle of us being disobedient and in the middle of us being rebellious, in the middle of us being unfaithful, God remains faithful and he would raise up a deliverer in the form of a judge. And you may, have, you may be familiar with some of the judges. The, um, the, more, the more familiar ones would be Gideon and Samson and, and men like that. And so he would raise up judges. The judge would deliver them from their, from their afflictions, from their, from their enemies. And then people would draw close to God. And then they would draw away from him and the cycle would repeat. I, I don't know. Is that, have you experienced something like that in your own life? where it's almost like we have this spiritual form of manic depressiveness. It's like one moment I'm very on and I'm close to God, and the next moment I'm just very far away from him. Oh, thank you, God, that you're faithful and gracious to me even when I'm off. And you're, you're with me when I'm on, and you're with me when I'm off. Praise be to God for that moment. And you get to the end of Judges, and it's one of the most depressing verses in Scripture because it's, the last, it's one of the last verses in the book of Judges. And this is just kind of where we are as we get to Samuel. In the book of Judges, the last verse, it says, And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think it's Judges 21, 25. And, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then you get to the space where we get into 1 Samuel. Samuel, really, he's a prophet. He's a prophet of God. But he and his sons really are the last judges of Israel. And they're the last judges of Israel because in this moment where the people were standing up and saying, we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. We really just want to be like everybody else. And I'm looking at all the other nations. They have a king. So Samuel, give us a king. This whole thing with judges isn't working. We want to be like everyone else. Give us a king. And you, you saw as we read that, you saw as we read that, that, that Samuel didn't like that. And the reason he didn't like that is because the nation of Israel historically had already had a king. And their king was God. God, through the book of Judges, had fought their battles for them. Every time they needed a deliverer, God raised up a deliverer. Every time they needed grace, God gave them grace. Every time they needed provision, God provided for them. Every time there was any need that they had, God, in his timing and in his way, if they would just notice, if they would just listen, if they would just watch or obey or surrender, each one, they would have recognized they already had a king. But in this moment, the children of Israel were once again pulling away from God and saying, God, I'd just rather do it my own way. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1. It's, it's a little bit of 1 and a little bit of 3. I'm just going to read it off of the screen. So you can go ahead and show that up there. I'm just going to read it off the screen because it bounces. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping just a little bit of it because it's uh, it's, uh, it says it very concisely here. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Well, now I'll suggest that that's a little out of the ordinary. Typically, a judge didn't declare another judge. Typically, it was God who raised up the judges. But in this moment, in this moment, Samuel, for whatever reason, felt like he should declare his sons judges. I can't say that Samuel was right or wrong in that. There's no judgment made here. I can just say it's not a historical practice. From the book of Judges, God did that, not the judge. But when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And then in verse 3, watch this. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways 
but turned aside after gain. Isn't that sad? These were men entrusted to lead. These were people entrusted to serve. They were entrusted to use their influence, to use who they are and what they had for the benefit of others. And instead, they used it for their own personal gain. And there's a, there's a principle I think we see in this, and it's an important principle for us because I think it applies to us today. God's people have been entrusted with an incredible responsibility. God's people have been entrusted with an incredible responsibility. And when I say God's people, I mean those of us who, are, who claim to be followers of Christ. I mean you. I mean me as followers of Christ. God has entrusted us with an incredible responsibility. And it's really related to this historic moment in the life of the children of Israel. If you go all the way back to Genesis 17.7. Genesis 17.7. If you want to turn over there in your Bibles with me. I think it's a great practice for us to get comfortable moving around in our Bibles. But if you look at Genesis 17.7. This is that moment that God is calling out Abraham. And he's making a covenant with Abraham, And here's something interesting that, that God says to him in Genesis 17, 7. He says, this is God saying this. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your offspring after, uh, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And here's what the covenant is. To be your God. I will be your God. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. You see, the nature of God's covenant and the nature of his relationship with the children of Israel was this. You've probably heard that the children of Israel are called God's chosen people, right? At least 43 different times in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's some variation of God looking to the children of Israel and saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God. And you will be my people. What's God's purpose? What's your purpose? What's our purpose as believers, as followers of Christ? What is it that God did when he chose the nation of Israel? Was he saying, Israel, I want to make you morally superior to everybody. I want to make you financially superior to everybody. I want to make you just superior in every sense. That wasn't really what he was saying. It was far better than that. He was saying, Israel, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And then God took it a step further in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. If you want to, you can turn there with me. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Here's the next idea. That with the nation of Israel, God says this. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. See, there's that covenant word again. That promise that he makes to us that he keeps whether we keep our promises or not. He's faithful to us. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So it's not in, in this history of Israel, and I know we're spending a lot of time on the history here, but, but I think it's important for us to catch this. One of the first things God does through Abraham is says, you will be my God. And our God, he says to Abraham, Abraham says, you will be my God and we will be your people. That's the first thing that happens. The next thing that happens is God says, and there's a purpose that I have for this. I want to make you a nation of priests and priests to the nation. Well, what does a priest do? A priest shows people who God is. 
A priest tells people about who God is. They're the ones, they're the intermediary. They're the one who helps people relate to who God is. They're the connection between God and humanity. And so it's almost like God looks at Abraham and says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family business. Here's your family business. Your family business is to represent me well in this world. When nations want to know about the one true God, I want them, Abraham, to be able to look to you and your children and your children's children and see See what it means to have a relationship with the one true God. That's the family business. You're a nation of priests and priests to the nations. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And then something miraculous happened. This ultimate deliverer came, and his name was Jesus Christ. He came to save his people from their sin. Well, who are his people? His people are those who follow him. His people are those who obey him. His people are those who trust in him for the forgiveness of sin. His people are the ones that he's drawn out, that he's called, that he's made his unique people, his own, just like Abraham, right? He picked Abraham. Don't know why he picked Abraham. Not because he was good enough or smart enough or fast enough, but because he picked Abraham. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to represent me well to the whole earth. And you know what he's done through Jesus Christ? If you're a believer in him, he's done the same thing for you. He's looked to you and said the brokenness that's in your life that is sin. The hurt that you've caused yourself and the hurt that you've caused others. I'll forgive that because I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And now I've entrusted you with this incredible responsibility. What is this incredible responsibility that we've been entrusted with? Well, that's where you've got to go to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you go to Peter. You go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is actually the relationship between, I'm not a Jew, I'm, I'm a Gentile, I'm an American, I'm a redneck, I grew up right here in Oklahoma, right? I speak redneck really well. Um, I'm not a Jewish person, so I can't claim to be a part of that promise in Genesis and Exodus. I can't claim to be a part of that by birth, and I can't claim to be a part of that because I'm, I'm not that. But look what he does in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you, and he's talking to Jews and Gentiles alike. He's talking to people who are followers of Christ But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so that idea that that he would be our God and that we would be his people, that's been transferred into the heart and the lives and the mission of everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ, that he is our God, we are his people, and that idea that we would represent him well in this place to the people around us, that is now the responsibility and the mission that God has given us. God has entrusted his people with an incredible responsibility. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that kind of amazing. I find that, because I know me. (laughs) I know how dumb I am sometimes. I know how lazy I am sometimes. I know how poorly I could possibly represent God. If, if, If God's reputation is tied to mine, that seems a little foolish, God. I can't believe you would do that. Maybe you feel the same way. 
man, if God's reputation is tied to mine, I wonder what people think of God. I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the gospel is that God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and everything he does is right, right? And so of all the ways he could have possibly chosen, of all the ways he could have possibly chosen to share his love, to share his mercy, to share his grace, to share his message with the world, of all the ways he could have possibly chose, he chose you as a believer in Christ. Here's the tragic part of 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people who were given that responsibility didn't fulfill that responsibility. Instead of representing God well, they pursued gain for themselves. And the end result was the people that they served, the people that they influenced, and the people that they led. They said, well, if this is what God's all about, I don't want any of it. I'd rather just be like everyone else around me. You know, there's so many promises in the Bible that are positive, but there are also promises in the Bible that aren't so positive. One of them is in Romans chapter 1. Don't turn there. But it's the idea that there comes this moment sometimes when we've said to God, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, I'd rather have this. And God says, okay, I'm just going to let you have it. I'm just going to give you over to it. Romans chapter 1 talks about that. I wonder sometimes if the reason why the world is today the way it is is because we have, as Christians, as believers, as the ones who are the guardians of grace, the presenters of grace, the carriers of grace, if we've been the people in our workspace where instead of grace following after everywhere we go, it's really misery and mayhem that follows after. Instead of being the worker that our boss can rely on to go over and above the call of duty, we're the one who does the least and the worst because we've... We're just trying to get ours and do our thing. If, if on the ball field or, or, or within our family, we're just waiting for everybody to serve us and we're trying to, again, get our own. And so now we're not representing Christ well. I wonder if God's going, well, I'm just going to give you what you want. You want stuff that won't last? Great. You can have stuff that won't last. I'll just let you have it. Romans chapter 1 is pretty clear about how miserable that makes you and the rest of the world around you. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is also pretty clear about that. It talks about how in the last times, in the last days, perilous times will come, that people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and disobedient to parents and obnoxious and rude and all these different descriptive words about how bad people will get. And then verse 5 is really interesting. It says they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. Those were the prophets that were the sons of Samuel. They had a form of godliness. They had a position. They had a title. They had something that, they had, all the, they had all the trappings of religiosity. They had all of those things. But because they didn't fulfill the responsibility, it wasn't simply their lives that were affected. It was the lives of a nation that was affected. I've said this before here and in other places. I really do believe that as much as a preacher influences a church, the people influence a preacher. I think that as much as a leader influences a nation, a nation influences a leader. And uh, not to get too political in this moment, but in all honesty, the leaders we have in this nation, no matter what side of the aisle you may fall, because of our democratic republic, they are absolutely a reflection of us, right? They didn't just take over. I mean, we elected them, right? So it makes me wonder if 
this is my one political statement for the day, makes me wonder if maybe we want better leaders, maybe we should be better people. Maybe that's what, maybe it's not about the ballot box at all. Maybe it's about the heart that we have for who we are. And then as we get very narrow and very specific to who we are as believers, man, if we've been entrusted with this incredible responsibility to carry the message of the gospel to the world, for God to be our people and for he to be our God and for us to be the ones who represent him well, then how are we doing in that responsibility? Because the fate, not simply of our family, but at least in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the fate of a nation was influenced by these men. Now, I can't lay it all at their feet because there were more men there, right? There was a nation full of people saying, I just want to be like everybody else. And so one of the things I want us to notice is that there's something that happens, and it's dreadful that happens when God's people ignore God's ways. And that's what you see really throughout the, the rest of, of this section, you see three things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the passages, uh, real, but I'm going to say the points really quickly. When God's people ignore God's way, there's three devastating effects to that. The first one is that freedom is discarded. The first thing that happens when we're ignoring the way of God, freedom is discarded. Look at 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 say, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old. Well, that's nice. <laughs> uh, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. They're willingly giving away their freedom because they want to be like everybody else. And they just don't want God to be in charge anymore. It's the first thing you see when God's people ignore God's ways. Freedom is discarded. The next thing you see is that responsibility is denied. You see, the reason why responsibility is, not, is denied is because freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. You can't have freedom without taking responsibility for yourself. But these people, in this moment, the nation of Israel was saying, I, I'm going to give away my freedom because I don't want the responsibility. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 say, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. Because Samuel had just told them all the bad things that were going to happen if you chose a king. And, and they're, they're like, No, no, we don't care if that's going to happen. We don't, either they didn't care or they didn't believe him. It's not really clear which one, but one way or the, uh, the other. They, they either didn't care or didn't believe him. But no, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us? Wait, wait a minute. Before this time, they, they judged themselves according to the laws and the traditions of Moses. They had responsibility for themselves within their families. They had responsibility to one another within their tribes. They moved together as God raised up a deliverer or as God raised up a judge or as God became that judge. We want, we want a man to do that. We don't want God to do that. This king will judge us and go before us and fight our battles. I don't want to take responsibility for my battles. I don't want to go out there. I have to, I have to exercise some more because it's hard to fight, right? It takes you have to run a little bit. I have to be in shape to do that. I need a, I need a king. I need somebody else to go out there and fight for me. And Samuel found this very offensive, but I think God found it more offensive because God 
over and over and over again had fought and won every battle for them. He was the one who brought them out of Egypt. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who parted the Jordan as they entered the Promised Land. He's the one who delivered them from the Philistines. He's the one who raised up a judge to help them overcome their enemies. He's the one who did all of that. And they're totally rejecting him in this moment and saying, I just want somebody else. I want somebody else to fight my battles for me. I don't want to take responsibility for myself, for others. I'm going to deny my freedom. I'm going to discard my freedom. I'm going to deny my responsibility. And that's the last thing that we see in this particular piece of the passage. 1 Samuel chapter 8, look at verses 10 through 18. I'm going to read that section. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. This is Samuel telling this is what's going to happen if you get a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he'll put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves and in that day you will cry out because of your king. You're not crying out in praise because of the king. You're crying out in misery Because of this man that you've put in charge over you. And in that day you will cry out because of your king. Whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord, he's not going to answer you in that day. You see, that's the the last thing in, in that particular piece of it. Is that our desires become dangerous. This was the promise God made. Hey, if you get, a, if you get an earthly king, you know what he's going to do? He's going to divide your family. He's going to take your sons to war and he's going to put your daughters to work. He's going to take your stuff. He's going to take the first of your stuff, the best of your stuff. He's going to take it. It's going to be the best. It's whatever your best is. He's going to take it and use it for his, own, for his own troops, for his own people, for what he wants. He's going to take the best of your stuff. And then he's going to tax what's left over. So the, the stuff you have today, he's going to take. And the stuff you make tomorrow, he's going to tax. He'll take your first and he'll take your best every time because that's what a king does. A king takes. And that's exactly what happened. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that God, in his law, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, he had already made provision for the idea that there would come a day when Israel needs a king, when they need an earthly king. His intent was for that earthly king to be Messiah. And in God's sovereignty, as the children of Israel were disobedient, even in Deuteronomy 17, he's saying, hey, this is the effect of the wrong king, of the king that doesn't follow me. But of the king that does follow me, here's the effect of that. Let's talk about what that looks like. And so so Samuel is just really teaching them one more time something that they should already know because it was already written in the book of law that, that God had given them. Sometimes the most dangerous thing we can receive is exactly what we want. Isn't that right? Sometimes the most dangerous thing you can receive is exactly what you want. You see, just by way of application, it makes me wonder, what are you pursuing so hard today? How many times have we heard in this passage already, hey, I just want to be like everybody around me. Give us a king like everybody around us. 
What are you pursuing today just to be like everybody else? How hard are you working at your job and leaving family behind or leaving faith behind or leaving friends behind? How, how hard are you working uh, at your hobbies just to have a good time? And, you're, and what are you leaving behind? What are you pursuing just to be like everybody else? Or what are you pursuing? And in that pursuit, you're giving up your freedom and you're, and you're giving up your responsibility just because you want to be like everybody else, just because you want to have something different, just because you're desperately trying to find a way to have a king you can control or a king you can blame. See, isn't that... I said I was going to make one political statement today, but maybe I need to make two. Isn't that sort of the nature of our politics today? No matter, again, no matter what side of the aisle you fall on, isn't it kind of nice to have that party that you can control because they agree with you and you turn on the news and whether you like you know, this one, you turn on that news or the other one, you turn on the other news and if you don't like either of those, you turn on the third news and they're just the crazy ones and so that makes it entertaining. You know, whichever one it is, you turn those things on and the one that, you're, that you gravitate towards, they're so smart, they're so brilliant and the reason why they're so brilliant is because they agree with me, Right? I may not have all the facts, but I do have all the answers. If these people would just ask me, I can tell them how to run this nation, right? And, and so you gravitate towards the people who agree with you because to some degree it feels like they're the people you can control. And then in the moment that someone makes a mistake, then in the moment that someone does something outside your particular political bend, then in the moment that they do something that's against what you believe or what you want or what you think, now you don't just have someone you can control. Now you have someone you can blame. And isn't that exactly what the children of Israel were looking for right here? The king they could control or the king they could blame. I don't want to take responsibility. I'll give up my freedom for it. And God's looking at them shaking his head going, no. You don't need anybody but me. I am your king. And it's not any different today. He wants to be your God. He wants you to be his people. And as his people, we should carry the message of who he is clearly and with responsibility. We should do that with skill and with passion because he is neither the God that we can control nor the God who's afraid of our blame. In that moment that my heart is broken over the death of a friend who played bass guitar for us, he can take it when I look at him in prayer and say, God, why? He can take it. And he can do something about it. You may not understand it. You may not like it. But trust me. You've trusted me before in other things. You can trust me in this. And do you know why? You know why you can trust me? Because, well, of this last principle. And this is just the last principle I want us to see. We're going to serve the God who gives. Or we're going to be ruled by those who take. We're going to serve the God who gives. Or we're going to be ruled by those who take. And, and these are just things that you already know, right? First, uh, not, not First John, but John 3.16. You all know that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he helped me out that he... Right, you're going to serve the God, you're going to surrender to the God who gives, or you're going to be ruled by those who do nothing but take. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, it says that God's divine power has given to us 
everything we need for life and godliness. You're going to serve the God who gives or be ruled by those who take. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, My grace is sufficient for you. No, that's not the verse I'm thinking of. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says that, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency for all things, will have an abundance for every good work. You see, you'll serve the God who gives, or you'll be ruled by those who take. And I think the best example of his giving is really Philippians chapter 2. The best example of his giving, as well as the idea that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that there is no king but one, and that is God, is Philippians chapter 2. Look at Philippians chapter 2 with me. This is out of the New King James Version, so look at it up here And if you have an ESV version. That's usually we're in ESV, but this is the way I've memorized it, and so um, it's the one I'm the most familiar with. It says this. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And I'm just going to take that and peel it apart really quickly. I, I think you heard what it said. Jesus, who is God, he gave and he gave and he gave again. He gave, well, first off, it says it, it, that he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning that he was equal with God, but he was willing to lay aside his authority and his power as God to come into humanity, to become one of us. He gave his authority and his power. He set it aside for a time so that we could see him as both fully God and fully human. He gave that away. And then, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He gave his reputation away. He was accused of crimes he didn't commit. He was convicted of crimes he didn't commit. He was put to death for crimes. Well, if I'm honest, if we look at the spiritual reality of who Jesus is, he was convicted of crimes that I'm guilty of. He was put to death for crimes that you were guilty of. He took his reputation and he said, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give up my reputation. He, he didn't just give up his reputation. He gave up really his rights as a man. I mean, you're accused of a crime that you didn't commit. What do you do? I have a right to remain silent. I have a right for this. I have a right for that. For that. No, when Jesus stood trial, he remained silent. He didn't defend himself at all. Why? Because he had a purpose, and his purpose was to give himself completely and totally for the glory of his Father and for you, so that you might know forgiveness and freedom. Not the kind of freedom that comes because my bank account's big enough, but the kind of freedom that comes because my life is in the hands of the one who knows what life is all about. He gave that, and then eventually he gave up his life. He willingly laid his life down on the cross at Calvary. He laid it down on the cross at Calvary. They didn't take it from him. He laid his hand out. He laid his feet out. He let them do exactly what they did because he knew in that moment by giving everything he had, he would receive everything God had promised. And what did he promise? You and me and his people 
and his world. And the end of that passage, which won't be on the screen, is brilliant and beautiful. It says, therefore, because, because Jesus gave all these things, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue will confess. Which tongues? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, in this moment in 1 Samuel, the children of Israel were crying out for an earthly king they could control and blame. And you get to Philippians, and in this incredible letter that Paul is writing to his friends, and he says, there is no king but Jesus. He is the one, he is the only. You can't control him, and blame doesn't bother him. He can take it. He's given everything for you. Will you serve? Will you surrender to the God who gives? Or will you be ruled by men, by humanity, by people who take? You see, he is the one true, the one and only king. And that's actually the part of the verse that I find really the most fascinating in Philippians. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So the question really becomes, will you do it today by choice? Will you do it today willingly? Will you do it today as an act of surrender? Or will you someday greet him face to face to find that you've set yourself against him? I want to just ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. During our services, we always have a moment where we have an opportunity to just respond and the response isn't to me, it's really to the Word of God and to what it is that, that God's been doing in your heart and your mind and your life throughout this week and, and through this, this message. But on, on a day like today, that question, would you rather surrender to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, or would you be ruled by those who take? That's a relevant question. And maybe today the way you need to respond is to simply surrender to him and say, I need to come to faith in Christ. I don't know exactly how to do that, but I'd love to talk to somebody about that. There'll be people down front who would be glad to visit with you about that. There's people all around you who could do that. And so maybe as we sing, you would come forward and talk to me or someone who's down here to say, I just want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you're a believer, but you've not been representing Christ well. Like Samuel's sons, you've fallen short and maybe in this moment, you need to come to this altar and just surrender once again and just say, just to pray. Say, Father, forgive me. I want to I represent you well. Maybe there's someone you need to pray for, someone you need to pray with. There are several ways you can move during this service. But my hope is that however you move, whether you stay where you are, you move to the front, or you just move after the service, my hope is that you're, you move towards obedience and surrender to him. Will you surrender? To God today. Father, we love you. We're grateful to you. You have done exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. You have given more than we could possibly imagine. And so today I pray that we would simply receive it, that we would surrender to you, that we would represent you well, and that we would be the people who follow you. We love you.